name is Scott. I am the lead pastor here at Jake's Well. My privilege um, it is to, to begin a new series. Um, we're calling this, if you had seen the video, it sort of introduces the vibe of it. Um, we're calling this Grammar Faith because there's a tendency uh, for us as Christians to use words that we never fully define. And you could be a Christian a long time, and there's these concepts and realities that we throw around that, um, that we that we ourselves wouldn't necessarily be able to articulate exactly what we mean by them. And so, uh, and these are things like really core to faith, like, like uh, some of the topics that we'll talk about over the next couple months are like the Trinity, you know, what's going on there? Um, or why we, why we do rely on the Bible as, as our final authority and what we mean by things like sin or the image of God or, or these kinds of concepts. And then the whole idea is going to be not just to define those things, but then to show how they work in the life of faith, how these things actually change how we go about our daily lives, how, um, how, how we feel, what our desires are to be in the world. And so, so that's, that's why I like this concept of the grammar of faith, because I don't know about you, but uh, for me, it wasn't until I was actually learning New Testament Greek that I began to learn uh, grammar. I don't like this uh, may be more popular now in public education in America, but I grew up like I kind of vaguely knew what an adjective is, but I definitely didn't know what like a direct object was. And some of you are like, yeah, me neither. Right. Like we're not taught. We're not taught grammar. We're not actually taught how language works. Right. We do vocabulary and we learn different words, but we don't actually know. Right. For most of us, whatever it is. Right. Subject, predicate or, you know, what is an adjectival participle and all these things, right? Like, that's how language works. Um, we won't be talking about any of that if you're nervous, but I feel like it's a good, uh, it, it's sort of a good analogy for in faith how, yes, we need to define these things, but then we also need to know how do they work? How, how does the life of faith actually work? And how do we take these core beliefs that we have and actually sort of, for lack of a better way to say it, kind of like activate them in our life? So that's where we're headed. Um, and a few caveats as we get into this, because we're going to be talking about the category for this, classically, is, uh, is theology. It's theology. That, and I don't know what you hear when you hear that word, but for many of us, that word immediately intimidates us. And we think like, oh no, I'm going to have to sit through a lecture, right? And, um, and we think that, and by the way, this is building off of, for those of you, there, there's going to be some familiarity here if you took speaking of discipleship course, the Intellectual Discipleship 202 course was a lot of this similar stuff. And so if you took that course, hopefully this, this feels like a bit of review for you. And one of the things that we said when we started that course was, for most of us, when we think of theology or when we think of a theologian, we picture someone sitting in the midst of a bunch of dusty old books and, you know, they have their glasses on and this is all they do and this is all they think about and their, um, their brain is just getting bigger and bigger. And that's not for most of us. And what theology is, is the word literally is a combination between two words that basically means what we say about God, what, what, what our thoughts are about God. And whether you have any degrees whatsoever or not, you are a theologian in the sense of you have some view of God. If someone were to say, what do you think of when you think of God, you do have an answer for that. Now, you might not believe there is a God. And that is actually a, even in, even in philosophy, they would say that that is a theological statement. 
that that is, that that is your theology. And so we all have a certain understanding of God, of spirituality, of ultimate things, and all of those belong within that category. So what we're going to say in this one is um, you don't have to be an academic, but if you're someone especially who has put their faith in Jesus, you are now what's called, and where we even get the concept of what we're going to start this Wednesday, discipleship course from, you are a disciple. And there's no more simple way to understand what a disciple is than a learner. And specifically, if we're disciples of Jesus, we learn at the feet of Jesus. We learn what Jesus teaches. We learn from the example of how Jesus lives and that that is this ongoing process. And so all I'm going to ask you to do is to maybe suspend some of that insecurity, suspend maybe some of even that antagonism toward intellectual things and to say, well, if I'm a disciple, then I'm a learning, so there's probably something here for me. So we're not expected to be academics or experts. We just want to be learners. I also want to say that sometimes <laughs> when Christians talk about these topics, um, we can tend toward, a, uh, toward two extremes. And I want to warn us against those two extremes. The two extremes are this sort of uh, rigid overconfidence that I know exactly what right belief is. And my beliefs and my set of 25 statements about the Bible, about God, about Christianity, are the 25 that are correct in every single line and phrase um, and that anything else is heretical and anything else, I don't know if you've ever been around these people, um, but, uh, but normally they're not super fun. <laughs> and normally, like, everything is, is a bit of a hunt to, to snuff out the error in what you believe. And honestly, it's at the feet of a lot of these people that I would put that insecurity that many of us have. Because we feel like if that's the level of confidence that I'm supposed to have, yeah, I'm never going to get there. And I would say that the scriptures actually warn us against that level of rigid overconfidence. That Jesus is constantly saying that the posture of a learner is a posture that should never go away. Right? And I don't know if you've ever been around someone who sort of gives off this sense of, I am a fully formed, uh, fully like, like developed and finalized product, and therefore nothing can get in. Some of my favorite people to be around are those who have been walking with Jesus for many, many years and still take the posture of a learner. Still say, oh, I got a, I got a lot still to go. And, and maybe I'm wrong about this and, and I need to think of it differently. And I'm looking at some of you that embody that so beautifully. And we have that within our community. Those are disciples. Um, I love the, well, there's another extreme too, right? The other extreme is to say, well, God is just a vast ocean, and what could we ever possibly conceive of him? And so to say anything, um, so I just leave it, you know, leave it all wide open. And there's this sort of, if there's this rigidity over here, there's sort of this liquid, yeah, whatever, what, whatever you want to say about God is totally fine. And I think captured, go to that first slide there with those two passages. I think captured in these two scriptures is, is a good sort of... Um, Warning against either of those extremes. Uh, we'll start here with Romans 11.33. This is written by the Apostle Paul, early Christian missionary and teacher. We're going to hear a lot from Paul today and throughout this series, likely. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
This comes after a long, this comes after sort of Paul's, uh, Paul's main work of theology, and he's talked about all these many things, and then he gets to the end, and he says, but look, at some point, there is just mystery in our encounter with the creator of the universe. There is an inability that we have in our humanness to grasp the fullness of everything that God is and the way that God works in the world. And some of us say, yeah, great, so I don't have to worry about theology, right? Like, it's just all too big, and it's all too highfalutin for me, and, and so I'll just leave that to people who care to make statements. But then you have something like in Jeremiah, this is one of the Old Testament prophets, and this says, thus says the Lord, this is God speaking, he says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the world, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So he says, if, if you want to see a, a human being that has reason to feel like they're actually advancing in the world, to feel like they're actually entering into their humanness, don't look to the mighty, don't look to the wealthy, don't look to the intellectually smart with many degrees, look to the one who has done the hard work of knowing me. And here I think he's talking about both senses. He's talking about knowing things about me, like that I am the God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. These big Old Testament and New Testament words that we're going to wrestle with partially in this series. But then he's also talking about relationally know me. And I think that right at the beginning here, I want to say that if our theology doesn't serve our relationship with God and merely makes us more impressive, in theological conversations, then we've, then we've missed the entire view. But, but hear what this is saying. This is saying we can know God. We can know things about God, and we can know and relate to God. And that God is, in some sense, one that we can never fully get our arms around, is what Romans is saying. You hear that balance there? And so this should be a, a, a giving of confidence to those who maybe are a little bit intimidated by this stuff, and then a warning to those who maybe aren't intimidated, who say, oh yeah, God, I, I got all that down. There's these, uh, there's this sort of uh, concept, this, this image that, that we ran a lot with um, in that course that, that's also going to be at, at the core of this. And it looks like this. Go to that next slide. Uh, here's some words to intimidate you. Welcome to church. Okay, these are big fancy words. But if you get nothing out of this, I want you to walk out of here like I know some words that are really big sounding, right? Um, ortho, ortho. What does ortho mean? Why do you go to the orthodontist? Yeah, braces. My son, my sweet son. Trey, why do you go to the ortho? What do braces do? They hurt. <laughs> What an answer. Ortho means hurt. No. Um, an orthodontist makes your teeth straight, right? Um, an orthopedist makes your back straight, right? It puts things in line um, that are out of line. So this, this first part of this word, this, here's a little grammar for you. The prefix of this word, ortho, 
you're like, I'm out of school. Um, ortho is this idea of straight, in proper alignment, okay? Then you have these three other words, these three suffixes, if you will. Orthodoxy. Maybe this is a word you've heard thrown around, right? You ever heard of the Orthodox Church? You ever, you ever dr driven by a Greek Orthodox Church or a Russian Orthodox Church or whatever it is, right? Orthodoxy is this idea of, uh, doxy is, is this idea of, of belief, of, of what you think, of, of doctrine is another fancy word you can log away in this. It's right belief is the simple way that we're going to talk about that. That the scriptures are very, very preoccupied with the fact that there are true statements we can say about God and false statements we can say about God. And true statements we can see, say about God are orthodoxy. They are, they are rightly aligned belief. And in some sense, orthodoxy is meant to lead us into orthopathy, right? Empathy, sympathy. What does pathy mean? It means a feeling, right? Empathy, I am moving towards you in how I feel. Sympathy, I am feeling with you what you feel, I feel. That's what pathy means. So right, right desires, right feelings in the world. Okay, these two things are to be combined. We're not just, Christians aren't just people who have 25 right beliefs about God, full stop. We get no implication that when we stand before God one day, he will primarily give us a theological test and say, did you believe these 20 right things? No, our belief is meant to impact our desires, how we feel in the world. That God is concerned, you've probably heard this said, that God is ultimately concerned with the heart. There's truth in that. In fact, some people call this second one orthocardia, which is a whole other thing, right? Like a, a right heart toward God. Cardiology, there you go. You're learning so much, see? Um, but orthopathy, this idea of, of a right posture, a right feeling, a right internal movement toward the world. And that ultimately then leads to orthopraxy. Praxy is, is this idea of action, this idea of what we actually do. So you see in this, you tracking with me? Right belief transitions into a right feeling, right desires, this, this internal posture of the heart that ultimately then issues into right behavior in the world. You could call this head, heart, hands. Head, heart, hands maybe is, is a way that you can conceive it. Now, I don't want to put too fine a point on this. I don't think in every case, oh, if it were the case that once I believe something, it changes my heart and then I act in line with it. It's like, oh, if that were the Christian life, right? Like this gets all kinds of messed up in all different ways, right? Because we have other things competing with what we believe. Anybody know that we can believe some false things about ourselves, about the world, and about other people, <laughs> right? That we have desires that are contrary, that are out of step, that need an adjustment naturally. Anybody have some desires that they're not proud of that if other people knew of, you'd be horrified, right? Thank you for the one yes, one, one yes, right? Orthopraxy, right? We have ways and habits and patterns of behavior that push against right patterns of behavior. So these things are, are sort of thwarted on all sides by other kinds of doxypathy and praxy, 
And yet, what we see biblically, I think of a passage like, um, shout out Malachi Daly is actually doing this passage this week. Great scripture memorization tool. Um, holler at Kieran Lenahan. Um, Dana's here, though. Come on, Dana. You can rub them. Um, anyway, uh, they're doing Romans 12.2, which is, um, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? By the renewal of your mind. That's where it starts. Our minds need to be renewed. We need new kinds of ways of seeing and understanding the world, which begins with a right understanding of God, which then enters into a right understanding of ourselves, a right understanding of others, a right understanding of the story that we're living in, that that's where renewal begins. And so that's where we'll begin, is with right beliefs and attitudes toward the world. One of the interesting things about this little chart here is if you think about it, especially if you've been around Christians, say you've been around church um, for a while, that what we tend to do is we tend to take one of these and make it ultimate. And it tends to be the one where we are most naturally inclined. So if we are inclined toward, you know, intellectual pursuits and inclined toward theology and those kind of things, we say the most important thing is that you have the right set of beliefs, right? This tends to be a very, uh, frankly, a very Western. Um, it tends to be, uh, I mean, I'm a white guy. Um, it tends to be a very Western, white, sort of, um, very kind of like in America, like old school, like you've got to believe these exact things, and that's what matters most. You've got to have your theology right. You ever been told that? Get your theology right, right? And that's it, full stop. You probably run into people who say, oh, it's all about the heart. And as long as you are passionate toward God, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do. But as long as, as, long as you have a passion for God, right? These tend to be people who love to, you know, who love to soak in worship and to stay in worship and to, and to spend most of their time alone with God and those kinds of things, right? And they say, oh, how, how can you be a Christian if that's not where your priority is? To be with God and to feel and to, and to express emotion to him, right? So as I go through this, I can almost look around the room and be like, oh, I, <laughs> I can see you go like, oh, yeah, that's kind of, right? And then there's other people who say, who cares about all this other stuff? What do you do? What do you do? What are your hands busy doing? Are you actually engaged with the world? Care about justice in the world? Are you engaged with the things that God is engaged with? We can get to theology later. You can pray all you want, but get out in the world and do something. Right? Who's right? Honestly, the answer is yes, right? And yet, there is something. Why, wherever you land in those, if you land in those, wherever you land in those, why you have such a strong case for your thing to be really important is because the scriptures refuse to put some sort of priority between those things. They say yes, but you can't set aside any of them in prioritizing only one of them, right? Because there is, there is potential error, there is a potential, um, the ortho gets out of whack if your right belief 
actually makes you someone who you're in your inclination towards the world makes you prickly, makes you kind of a jerk, right? Like, God won't have that. Yeah, but my theology's really good, right? You can't say, yeah, my theology's really good, and then God says, well, when was the last time that you actually set your hands to the things that I've set my hands to in the world? And if you just feel, which is beautiful, and the scriptures say, yes, go to God and, and soak in his presence and know God deeply and love to be with him, right? We just went through the Psalms, man. Like, yes, if that's your book, praise God. But you know what the Psalms do? The Psalms say theological truth about God and say if you're, you're only actually relating rightly to God if you understand the one that you're relating to. And so theology really matters. And yeah, our prayers are meant to push us into the things of God. And so we see this, even in David, who wrote many of the Psalms, right? Like, it's, it's not just about being in the presence of God. We feel this sense many times when we preach this, that he's pushed back out into the world with a different kind of mindset because of that encounter with God. And if you're someone who says all that matters is what we do, one, if you're never relating to God, there is, there is, a, there is a kind of burnout that is unique to that last category where you say, man, I thought that I was pleasing God. I thought that I was doing everything that he asked me to do. And it's like, yeah, but you never stop long enough to actually receive the love and grace and rest that is uniquely in his presence. And a lot of times we say, yeah, I, I, we end up doing good and we end up defining that more by ourselves than by who God is and by what his purposes are in the world. And we can become self-congratulatory that I'm doing good in the world. And we haven't spoken to God. We haven't thought of God in that. Okay? It's got to be all of them. Right? This is where church, here's what I will say. Most of us will end up inclined toward one of these. This is why we also need each other. And we don't need each other to stick our finger in each other's chest and say, when was the last time that you, whatever, right? Had a quiet time. When was the last time you read a book of theology or whatever, right? We don't need to do that. We need to encourage each other and realize if we're all learners, hey, teach me how to do the thing that you're actually good at. Man, it seems like this theology stuff comes natural to you. Can you help me understand this? Like, I didn't know what Pastor Scott was talking about on Sunday, right? Like, help me understand this. Hey, it seems like you're the kind of person that has a consistent walk with Jesus where you're in his presence a lot and where your, your desires are for him. Teach me how to do that. What does that even look like? Hey, you're someone with actual proximity to the needs of the communities around us. And like you, you actually have relationships with people who are outside of your ethnic, socioeconomic. Like, teach me what that looks like. You bring me with you. I just don't have that in my life. You see how much better that is than screaming across, right? We love to do this. We're Protestants. We're always protesting something. And normally we're protesting each other. Like, but they don't do this part well. Their theology is bad, right? Like, if we would just, right? Like, there is such a, um, there is such a some kind of trism Right? Like, I don't know if it's ethnocentrism, but like that same idea, there's such a, uh, a trism to, to Protestantism that acts like Jacob's Well in 2023 in central New Jersey is the church that finally figured it out. Do you know what the chances of that are? Do you know what the chances of 20 years from now us looking back at what we're doing now and being like, nailed it? Right? Many of you grew up in church and you look back. And you go, what were they thinking? Right? We have kids here now who will grow up and in 20 years go, what were they thinking at Jacob's Well, right? Now, we don't have to live in constant fear of that, but we've got to live with some of the humility of that. 
and not act like, well, we're the ones that have finally arrived. Are we doing our best? Yeah, we're doing our best. We're doing what we feel like. Were people 20 years ago in the church you grew up with likely doing their best? Yeah, they were probably doing their best. Now, there's some wacky stuff out there. We have enough podcasts about that, right? But there's some weird stuff out there. But like most of the time, God's people are trying to be faithful, but we're missing it in some area. And so often it's, it's in one of these, right? Our theology goes off track. We become heartless and affectionless, and our desires are completely quieted. Or we become a church that loves being together, loves talking theology and loves prayer meetings and worship and all that stuff, and we don't do anything out there. The world doesn't even know we're here, right? And so we need to constantly feel the challenge of these things. And what I would say is it tends to start with remembering who we are. It tends to start with fresh encounter with the living God and saying, okay, God, this is what you say is true. Something has gone off track. Realign, realign our minds, renew our minds, realign our hearts to that, and then set our hands to what you want to set our hands to. I love this, um, that ultimately, right, um, let, let's just take the first two, this, this idea of, of, um, of truth, the importance of truth, of right belief, and the, and the importance of right feeling. One of, one of the things that this whole concept springs from is actually something that Jesus says in his encounter at Jacob's well. It's in his encounter at Jacob's well with this Samaritan woman that if you've been with us for any amount of time, you've heard us talk through a lot. Remember the part where he's talking and she kind of interrupts him and he wants to get at her personal life and he's kind of putting his finger on, on her greatest pain and she suddenly wants to have a theological conversation, which I love this. Is, uh, so he's like, hey, I know you have a really complicated history with men. And she's like, uh, which mountain do you think we should worship on, <laughs> right? Like it's this deflect. Um, it seems like that's what's going on there. But it's a real theological debate at that time. Should they be worshiping in Jerusalem? Should they be wor worshiping at this other, other mountain uh, that's, that's in Samaria? Remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, the time is coming when we'll neither worship on that mountain nor that mountain, but the Father is seeking those who will worship him in, you remember what he says? Spirit and truth. Oh, look at you guys. In spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. What he's getting at there is he's saying location doesn't matter as much as two things. Heart posture, orthopathy, and truth, a right understanding of the one that you're actually worshiping. And that day is coming, and it's coming in Christ. When those two things will align, when you will have a right understanding, a fuller understanding, when God is fully revealed in Christ. Now, this is Jesus saying it. He's saying this as God, and he's saying and that that will lead to a spirit level, a soul level, a heart level worship of me. That's unique. Listen to Pastor John Piper, pastor for many years in Minneapolis. He says this, and I realize that this is small. I even got a little bit. Together, the words spirit and truth mean that real worship comes from the spirit within and is based on, the true, on true views of God. Worship must have heart and worship must have head. See him toying with our categories here? Worship must engage your emotions and worship must engage your thoughts. Truth without emotion, check this out, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of unspiritual fighters. Emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates flaky people who reject the discipline of rigorous thought. 
True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. <laughs> Isn't that really good? I just find that really helpful. Um, I can't say it any better than that. There you go. What we can do, go, go to that next slide, Brian. I'll just add a, another fancy word. Ultimately, what, what Piper is getting at in that quote is that all of these things are really meant to, to lead to a life of, of right worship. Understanding worship as not singing songs at church on Sunday, but worship as assigning ultimate worth to God by thinking our deepest thoughts and accurate thoughts about him, by making the, the deepest passion of our heart his passions, his desires, and then by also worshiping him through a life of obedience. That all three of those matter to God deeply. And that any of them cut off isn't fully properly this word doxology, right? Again, if you grew up in church, you probably know this word from doxology. Praise God, from, right? The doxology. That's like the worship song is basically what that word means. That's what doxology is. It's giving glory. It's saying glorious words back to God. Go to that next slide. Let me, let me just show you a couple more ways that I want this to, to be. This time I, I'll try not to trip. Don't worry about me. Um, what we can do here too is we can start in the wrong place. We can start with how we feel. Right? We can start with present circumstances. And this I would just say, here I'm talking especially to to followers of Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation where your circumstances change and suddenly your thoughts about God change? <laughs> That's a rhetorical question. I don't know anyone who hasn't ever been through something that suddenly causes us to say, is God really good? Is God even present? Does God care about me? Is, is, is God really trustworthy? We take that feeling that we're having, almost always from circumstances, and we say, this is now determinative of what's true about God. And in those moments, what we need first is permission to feel those feelings and think those thoughts, which hopefully this summer, being in the Psalm shows you almost everything that I just said that is frankly heretical, we'll use throw that word around, right? Like heresy is like bad beliefs that get people in trouble, are in the Psalms. God, where are you? God, are you good? God, I've entrusted myself to you, and yet I'm going through this, right? We have permission that thinking wrong thoughts about God doesn't make someone not a Christian, okay? <laughs> Can we just say that, right? Like this is something that happens. So what we need in that is for someone to come alongside us and give us permission to feel those things. And then what we need carefully and over time is for someone to remind us that our feeling in any given moment is not determinative of who God is. That's why one of the most courageous things you can do when you're going through a really brutal season, which I know many of you are even now, is show up here. Because there will be things said about God that you will sit here and say, I, I don't, I don't, feel like that's true right now, but I need to sit here and keep hearing it, right? Because my mind right now 
is telling me something because of what I'm feeling that I need to be reminded of. Do you know how much of the Christian life and how much of the New Testament is reminding us of things we already knew? Because circumstances change and our feelings change and our desires change. We need to be careful not to allow that to be determinative. Here's another thing that happens. We start with our practice. We start with our behavior. Here I would say we can start with our desired behavior and rewrite our theology. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Jalen. Jalen knows what I'm saying, right? We can start with, yeah, but I want to do this. So did God really say? <laughs> you know where that's from? I'm quoting from the Bible. Did God really say? Because I really, I look at the fruit. You know what happens to Eve? Let me preach uh, Genesis 3 for a second. You know what happens to Eve? Servant comes and he says, did God really say? Then you know what it says she does? It says she looks at the fruit and sees that it is good, that it is delightful. You know what she's doing? She's taking a desire, she's taking a practice, and it's influencing her desire. She says, I do want to eat that fruit. And ooh, it looks good, right? Do you see the path is changing? See her heart is changing? And then she says, I know that God said that if we eat of it, we'll die. But maybe that's not actually true. So I'm going to do what I want to do, right? And then we go, oh, Eve, right? Like how naive, right? And then there's a desired practice in our life. There's a desired behavior. And we go, yeah, I don't know. Did God say? Because, man, my evaluation of this, my pathy says this would be good for me. And so I'm going to rewrite the goodness of God. I'm going to rewrite the definitive, authoritative voice of God in my life and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm actually going to upend this whole structure and put this desired practice first. When you think about it, what Eve should have done, what my goodness, her husband, who apparently is sitting there, should have done, is say, no, 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 God really said. And God is still God. And that's a serpent. <laughs> and he don't look very nice. And we've experienced the goodness of God in an ongoing way because look around you at all you have. And it's solely because of God. And the only reason you have breath in your lungs is because God created us out of the dust of the ground with his very fingers and then gave us this beautiful role in relationship with him and we've talked to him and we know him and we know there's nothing that we've experienced that's better than being in his presence. And yet Eve says, yeah, but what if this is better? You know, she's rewriting Last thing. Last thing we can do, and, and this, is, this is more of, I think, a, a cultural reality that we're living in right now, is we can say belief doesn't really matter. Like, it, it matters that you believe something, but what you believe is not super consequential. Like, just believe what you believe, right? By the way, this whole thing, right, like, I grew up, I remember growing up and... Um, in being told, like, yeah, our culture is really in this, like, believe what you want to believe thing. 
And I feel like we're, we're getting so burned out on that that like, I think that this whole thing is going away. <laughs> this idea that you can believe what you want to believe and I can believe what I want to believe and we're not going to get in each other's way, right? Like, just take our political environment, right? Like, <laughs> do we really believe you can believe what you want to believe, <laughs> Fox News, and I can believe what I want to believe, MSNBC, and we won't get in each other's way and we won't harm each other and everything will be better off for it. Are we better off for that? Thank you. We're not. Um, but anyway, let's act like this is still a thing, because it is, right? Because there's also just like your daily life, right? Like whatever, culture's out there, but I'm talking about your daily life. Some people will say, that's great. That's great that you believe that, but it doesn't really matter, right? Like I have my own set of beliefs about God, and it's great that we can both have belief. Like there's no such thing as ortho. It's just doxy. Like, I'm glad that we all have ways of believing in the world. And I think that, I think the Apostle Paul does a really good job of, um, of just demonstrating the lack of intellectual seriousness of that belief. Listen to this. So, the Apostle Paul, this is a very famous chapter in one of his letters, and he's talking about Christ's resurrection. Now, Christ's resurrection points to the fact that, that there will be resurrection at the end of, of all history, that we will be raised in Christ. This is what he says. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, I would underline that if you're looking in a physical Bible. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he did raise Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has, has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are of all people. If Christ has not been raised, Christians are to be pitied above all people because we live not just with the intellectual belief on a sheet of paper that we would check off and say, has Christ been raised? And we would say, yes. And then we go and live our life. No, if you believe Christ has been raised, it is meant to impact your, your, your emotional life, your inner life, your desires. It is meant to impact your behavior. Our lives, followers of Jesus, should not make sense. Others should look in and say, your life is a question that begs an answer. Why do you live that way? And Paul is saying the answer is because we really, really, really believe that Christ was dead and then he wasn't dead anymore. And my life makes little to no sense. The desires that I've said no to makes no sense if Christ has not been raised. The way that I, that I live for others, the way that I give up what I think the good life would be in order to submit to a different way of being in the world, that only makes sense if Christ has been raised. I think most of us get it wrong when we think of Christianity as an upgrade package that if, it's, if Christ wasn't raised and we get to the end and we were wrong, it's like, oh, it was a better life anyway. It's not, y'all. That's why the prosperity gospel is so so dangerous. The Christian life is not an easier, happier, more pleasure-filled life 
this side of the resurrection. It's a response to the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened in human history and, and pushes all the chips in with that and says, my life, the, my life begs the question, why would you live that way? And Paul is saying the answer is because Christ has truly been raised. And he's saying orthodoxy, orthopathy, orthopraxy, they all only make sense if, if, if the belief that Christ has been raised makes sense. If it's not, we're to be pitied more. Guess what? If it is, if Christ has been raised, if Jesus Christ was the Son of God, came into this world, died so that you can actually go free from all of the horrible stuff you believe, from all of the horrible things that you felt in your life, and all the horrible things that you and I have done, And he took that all on himself. And you don't believe that. Guess what? You're to be pitied more than anyone else. If Christ really has come, and he says, the worst things that have happened to you, the worst things that have been done to you, can actually be healed. Because I'm going to take them all up one day, and my resurrection is but a little foretaste, like we said in the liturgy this morning, of what's coming at the end, where everything is wiped clean. Every tear goes away. That all of that will be wiped clean. And somehow all the sad things come untrue. If you don't believe that, and you think that those things are determinative in your story, that that is simply who you are and who you will always be, you are to be pitied. Now, I'm not saying that as a self-righteous, so therefore believe. I'm just saying there's consequence, y'all, to whether this stuff is true or not. Right? Like, in, in, in American sort of uh, everyday culture, there's, this, there's still this belief. If I do more good stuff, then I do bad stuff that God will let me in ultimately. If that is true, and you spend your whole life trying to do good stuff, and you work really hard, and that's actually the way it goes, good for you. But if you get to the end, and all of that work and all of that moral striving was for nothing because it was about Jesus. You were to be pitied more than anyone. If I believe that someone six months prior to their death can put their faith in Jesus and all of their sins are undone with, and even if they don't have sufficient time to do a bunch of good stuff, to outweigh all the bad stuff that had been in their story for decades before that, right? And it actually turns out, no, your good stuff has to weigh out your bad stuff. That person is to be pitied. But if that person is able to put their faith in Jesus, no matter the timeline of their life, whether they have sufficient time to now make up for all the bad things they've done, and that's actually how you will be judged, that person's not to be pitied. <laughs> that person's to be said, "Woo! you received a gift. You got a gift at the end. Right? There's consequence to these beliefs is all I'm saying. And what I'm saying is, we're going to talk about beliefs that if they're true, make all the difference in the world. If they're not true, I would say this every week. I think Paul would say it about every, if the Trinity is not true, we are to be pitied more than anyone else. Because we misunderstand the world. And we live our lives differently because of the Trinity. We're to be pitied, right? It's intellectually unserious to say what you believe actually doesn't matter. And we're living in a cultural moment where that reckoning is happening. Because there's no such thing as a belief that isn't, we are, here's what I believe. We are people that were made for relationship. We are not these isolated beings that can live a life that has no consequence for others, right? We're learning that. And therefore, this idea that my belief doesn't impact anyone else, it's just my thing, 
it won't stand. It's not standing at a societal level. And this is where we come in and we say, well, Christians actually have some answers to these things. And guess what? We haven't always embodied them well. Some Christians don't have an inner posture that's actually distinctly Christian, though their theology is distinctly Christian. Some Christians don't actually have a practice in the world and don't set themselves to the things that God cares about, justice in the world, right? Because we have some preferred other ways of preserving power like everybody else, right? If that's the ultimate goal, I have to preserve my power and privilege, and that's, that's what's most important. Oh, we'll re- rewrite our theology. Look at the history of this country. Like, this is what we do, right? But find some Christians that take seriously that right belief means right feeling and desires, means right action in the world. You're never going to find one. There's only one who embodied it perfectly, and his name was Jesus. You'll find some communities that are trying really hard to get this right. I hope we're one. I hope we're one. I have the humility to say, who knows, right? Um, ultimately, I, I, we're trying really hard. We're really trying to seek the face of God. We're trying to guard our theology. We're trying to have a heart posture toward him that remains soft. We're trying to do things in the world that actually matter to God, right? And you'll find a community that's actually a question that does have an answer. We're not going to talk specifically about the resurrection in this, though it'll come up in various other ways. But right this whole thing illustrates a nice, a nice point. But <laughs> there might be no more important belief that I would move you towards as we start this than the actual, true, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That that, like, really happened. Here's how Paul finishes that passage. He says, but in fact, in fact, this is a fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. <laughs> but in fact, Christ has been raised. I love that. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now check out how he lands it. He says, therefore, therefore, because this is true, because in fact Christ has been raised, therefore be steadfast and immovable. He's talking about there? He's saying let your inner posture be one of confidence. Let your inner posture be one of not being swayed all around by various things. Let your desires, let your feelings, let your emotions be one that is centered on this truth. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, the labor of the Lord. Yeah, there's work to be done, follower of Jesus. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor's not in vain. See what he does there? I put your little brackets there. He works from orthodoxy back to orthodoxy, bringing inner emotion and heart posture and behavior and action in the world into it. And so I would just encourage you to ponder that as we head into communion now, right? If, in fact, Christ has been raised, are these things true of you and I? And I'll have Brian lead that up there just while we're coming forward. Use this as some meditation. Like, which, which of these feels maybe out of whack, and in need of an adjustment. Say, yeah, Lord, my, I, I've, been, I've been thrown all around by a whole bunch of other things internally. I haven't been immovable, right? But you, if you have been raised, there's reason for hope today and there's reason for confidence today. Or maybe it's, yeah, Lord, I, I haven't been busy with your labor, 
because I really believe that labor in other ways in my life and other pursuits that I have are the more lasting and significant thing. And I need to get back to prioritizing first things because those are the things that will last. Those are the things that are truly not in vain. Or maybe it's just, man, it's been a long time since I thought about the fact like, man, you really were raised. Like that really is my hope. I am no longer in my sin. I need to be reminded of that. 